Uh, folks, uh, this morning, um, I thought we would just carry on the theme that we've been doing the last few weeks, and we've been talking about His presence. We've been talking about the presence of Jesus. We've been talking about the presence of God who comes to us. Uh, we did that last couple of weeks as we talked about the fatherhood, and we talked about Father's Day and what have you. Um, and I just thought, just for a minute or two, I, I think we just should, before I speak, is just practice His presence. It's a phrase that I've been using over the last number of weeks. Practicing His presence simply means being still and not praying and not doing anything except being still. But being mindful, but also inviting the presence of Jesus to come. So can we do that? Um, it would help us all if you, we all closed our eyes. Um, don't worry, we're not going to go and steal your mobile phones. And That's a stupid joke, stop it. That's totally stupid. Let's, uh, let's pray together. God, we're so grateful for your presence, that you are with us. just welcome more of you. We invite more of the tangible presence just now, just to come. And in this moment, would you speak to us? Fear not, for I am with you. And God, right now, for those of us where fear is such a presence in our life, fear and anxiety, right here, right now, in this moment, we pray that you would replace that with your perfect love that casts out all fear. We tell it to go. You're much bigger than the fear. And you're in control. You're in control. You're in control. And whatever that is, we choose now just to surrender it. We choose 
to give up our control and we just put you in control. His kindness leads us to repentance. He's good to us. His favor is upon us. I'm so grateful for the person of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we have a phone. I'm going to dip in and found it. There it is. This is the church phone, by the way. There it is. It's, uh, and on it, the screensaver that Chantelle has chosen to put on there says this. Holy Spirit is not a force to be he is a friend to be known. And that was Craig Cooney, who's uh, known to many of us here. Holy Spirit is not a force to be. He is a friend to be known. Friend to be known. And I'm so grateful for the Holy Spirit that is available to us and to available to our lives. You know, I just often have wondered, when we read the Old Testament, the people of God, the Israelites, didn't have the Holy Spirit. I just, just let that penny just drop right now. They did not have access to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came at Pentecost to all. Aren't you so glad that you have a friend in the Holy Spirit? Aren't you so glad that the counselor who is documented in John comes to us to comfort us in our sorrow? Aren't you so glad that when we're just scared and afraid and we're not sure what to do tomorrow, the Holy Spirit comes to whisper? to whisper into our ears and into our hearts, to lead us and to guide us and to give us direction. Aren't we so glad that the Holy Spirit comes and convicts us of our sin when we start straying off the path? And he's like, hold on, hold on. You're going the wrong way there, son. Come on back. This is the way that we're supposed to go. Aren't we so glad of the person of the Holy Spirit who is God? It isn't this mystical force. It's not those of us who enjoy Star Wars you know, this all-not-seeing, all incredible thing that guides. The Holy Spirit is God and points us towards the Father and towards the Son. The Holy Spirit speaks what the Father and the Son have to say to us. Aren't we so glad of the Holy Spirit? What I want to do is actually take us back, though, and look and take us on a little bit of a Bible study throughout uh, 1 Samuel to talk about the Ark of the Covenant. And for those of you who want to get a picture of the Ark of the Covenant, just remember Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's a slightly interesting story, n not taken from the book itself, but nonetheless quite entertaining. Um, the Ark was a wooden container dressed with gold. It housed the tablets of stone of which the Ten Commandments were inscribed on. And inside there, carried amongst the Ark, was the presence of God, the presence of God. And I love reading the Exodus story, how Moses uh, brought the people out of uh, slavery, they're in, they're at the base of Mount Sinai, and all those times, all those moments when Moses went as the messenger, as the leader, as the prophet, as it were, to the people of Israel and went up above the mountain, and only he could go. Why? Because the presence of God was so strong and so tangible. He told the Israelites, don't even go near the mountain. Don't touch the mountain. You touch the mountain, 
it's not going to be good for you. Why? Because the presence, the holiness of God, that mankind could not enter into the presence. And yet today we sit here nonchalantly. Is that the right word? Just kind of, oh yeah, we're here in our shorts and t-shirt. We just rock up and hang out with Jesus because he's our friend. I'm kind of mocking that slightly to make a point that we must not take him flippantly. We must not underestimate the presence and the power and the majesty and the holiness and the glory that is God. And when we shape and when we face up to the presence of God, we pretty much become consumed with his holiness and we feel this sense of unworthiness. And yet because of the blood of Jesus shed for us on the cross, we are able, we have access, we have these moments where we are able to enter into the presence, his presence. The ark represented his presence. And we read these biblical stories where uh, one, for instance, is when they go to Jericho and they take the town of Jericho. And we know the story well. They marched around it seven times, seven days. But before them, they carried the ark of the covenant. The ark carried the presence of Jesus, the presence of God. Went before them in battle. And the, pre- the, the ark was almost like the special weapon. It was like the Gatling gun. It was like the, um, the nuke that just created just devastation. Why? Because of the presence of God. Until one day, and here we are, we take up the story. We're in 1 Samuel 4. We've got a few passages. I know, because I'm not an auditory learner, that means a listener, learner, that right now I would switch off when I'm about to read. I've done this before, so stay tuned, and I'll try and animate as best as I can. We'll see how we go. Stay with it, because if you stay with it, you're going to get it much more than if you don't stay with it. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. That's the good people versus the bad people. God's people against the not-so-God's people. The Israelites camped to Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why? Why did the Lord bring defeat uh, on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh. So that we, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh. They brought back the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hopni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. That's important. It's important that the writer of 1 Samuel documented that those two sons of Eli were there. And we'll come back to that in a moment. When the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout with, uh, and the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid a God has come into the camp. They said, oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought 
and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. God's people go to war against the Philistines. And round one, ding, ding, they got a right kicking. They got a right hiding. They lost 4,000 people on that first day. And they go back and they're reflecting. And the leaders of Israel are asking these questions. How come? How come we lost? Why has that happened to us? And they decide, it's a good, good decision. Let's get the ark. The ark's going to go before us. The ark, God is going to be with us. And he's going to give us um, uh, the uh, victory that we need. The Philistines are fearful. They hear, my goodness, what is this? We've heard of this ark. We've heard of this God, the God of the Israelites, the God of the Hebrews, who once upon a time were subjected slavery from the Egyptians and what their God did to the Egyptian people. Oh, my goodness. Yet they stand up, they stand strong, and they fight. And on that day, they defeat the Israelites. 30,000 people die, and Eli's sons are two of them. Why is that so important? We read in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of 1 Samuel that they were bad boys. Eli was the priest. He was the main man of the day, and his sons were not good sons. And Eli did not take matters into his own hands as a father and bring the relevant discipline that was required for them. And there's two significant things that those boys did, or those young men did. One is that they slept with the women of the tent to the meeting. They were sleeping around. That's, that's clear. And then the second thing is that they were stealing from the Lord. They were stealing from what was God's. You see, outlined as priests, or the Levites as they were, that ministered before the Lord and ministered before the people, they were uh, apportioned a certain amount of food. This is just the how, how it went in those days. They received um, from the people the people's offering, and that's how they kind of supplemented their livelihood, and that's how they got their food. And they were permitted that the food would be boiled, the meat would be boiled in a pan, and they would take a three-prong fork, and they would stab inside the boiling water, and whatever came up, that was what they got. That was their feast, or that was their food, or their, their, their feed. And yet the lads decided, no, we don't want to do that. We want the meat before it goes in the water for two reasons. When it's in the water, the fat would burn off, and so some of the food would go. And the other reason is they know what they're getting before it goes in the water. It's lucky dip otherwise. And they, they started intimidating the people, saying, we're not going to do the three-pronged fork job. We just want to give us, give us, Granny, give us your food. Give us that, that choice sirloin steak before it goes in the fire, please. And this was bad. Why? Because it was an offering to the Lord first and foremost. And it's one thing, and you can read it in other passages of Scripture, never mess with the offering to the Lord. Never mess with money. Never mess around with that stuff because it's unto the Lord. It's a gift and an offering to the Lord. 
Why is this important? Well, well, come on as we go. Because the question is this, why were the people of Israel defeated that day? And why was the ark captured? Why did that happen? We'll revisit that as we go. We're on to our next passage. Stay with us. Stay tuned. I probably shouldn't have done this. This is like the worst Sunday of the year. Everyone's sleepy. We're on summer holidays. This is, it's, I, we should be, it's like school, isn't it? We should be watching DVDs today, shouldn't we? <laughs> I have totally misread today. I've got more Bible in here than the whole year. My apologies. Stick with it. You're thinking, can't we do this in September? <laughs> oh, more. Oh, goodness. Here we go. Spot the swap. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> 1 Samuel 5. Apologies, Ian. Didn't mean it. After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When, uh, the, then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it before Dagon. Am I pronouncing that right? That'll do. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and they were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who entered Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of God of Israel must not stay with us. His hand is heavy on us and Dagon, our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what shall we do with the ark? They answered, let the ark of God of Israel be moved to Gath. So they moved the ark of God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought the ark of God of Israel round to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death has filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. Imagine the Philistines when they first captured the ark. Imagine it. It's like, hey, we have captured the secret weapon. We have taken it from the people. We have stolen their secret power. We have stolen their God. They are doomed and we are empowered. We have got their God and he's going to fight for us. And they placed this wooden container dressed in gold. They, they put the ark in the temple of their God, their idol, Dagon. Dagon was uh, this, um, whatever, I've got it, this chief deity of the Philistines. It's their worship of their pagan God, which dates back to the third millennium B.C., and according to ancient mythology, Dagon was the father of Baal, and he was a fish god, 
representing half man, half fish. Interesting, right? This is their deity. This is their God. And they have chosen to put Yahweh literally in the temple. And day one, they find the statue of Dagon literally fallen to the ground before the ark. And they're like, Flip, what's going on here? And they lift it up and they stick it back up. And the next day, they find it face down, which I think is significant, with his arms and legs broken off. Greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Worship him and worship him only. Thou shall not have any other God beside me, says the Lord. And put before their God, their God falls face down. And how we as his people, when we come before the very presence of God, we find ourselves face down in worship, humbly before him. And it makes us, faces us to the idols that we create in our own lives. Thou shall not have any other God beside me. They get rid of the ark. They send it from Ashdod to Gath to Ekron. Three different geographical locations of the Philistine people. And in each of those places, death comes. Tumors come. Everywhere it goes, bad stuff happened. Why was the ark captured? Why did God allow it? I think there are some good reasons. First of all, he withdraws his presence, his real presence, from his people when they decide to go their own way. Eli and his sons were choosing to steal from the Lord and to, to enter into sexual promiscuity. And when we turn our backs on the way in which God sets us and is inviting us and leads us into, we withdraw our presence from his presence. We are walking in this direction towards the Father, towards God, and when we choose to abandon his ways and we choose to abandon and remove ourselves from a relationship with him, we begin to turn our backs on him and walk a different direction away from him. We withdraw our presence from his presence. But also I think there's a time when he withdraws his presence from his people. And we find this in this passage. His presence departs from his people, literally. And I think part of that is because of the sins of the people. During this time, we read earlier that Eli is also, he's raised two of his own sons quite badly, but he also raises a significant other, a foster, or an adoption of the man of Samuel, who is, we find soon, is going to lead in a different way. 
The second thing is, I think that God people deserve to go into exile. There are other times, other accounts in the book where we read when God's people went into exile, that they were actually captured and taken and removed and became subject to another people and became slaves to another people. And part of that is, again, because they chose to go their own way instead of God's own way. But in this story, we learn this. This is really quite significant. That instead of the people being sent into exile, God chose to go into exile. God chose to go, his presence, into exile to be with the Philistine people, to go to be with the enemy. And in that place, a significant thing happens. God fights for the Israelites on the other people's turf, literally. Because in that time and in that place, we read how he defeated the Philistines, how he brought death to the Philistines, how tumors came to the Philistines in that time. The presence of God. It wasn't even the, the God's people, the Israelites, didn't uh, win any victory. It was God himself. He's the one who fights for us. He's the one who's fighting our battles. And we said this, didn't we, two or three weeks ago. All we need to do is be still. The Lord will fight for us. Redemption and restoration is always God's heart. And God was leading and ushering his people to return to the Lord. This is the, this is the biblical meta-narrative. That's a fancy word for basically saying from Adam right the way through the book, we see this thing happening where God is wanting relationship with his people, but his people stray from God. They choose to go their own direction. And God is always ushering in, always welcoming, always presenting invitation for us to come to him. And we read this throughout the scriptures. And this is true for our lives. It's so true for our lives. The days when we choose to put our focus and our attention on him and choose to follow him and his direction. And when we hear his voice and we choose to obey his voice, he leads us into life. He leads us into the promised land. He leads us in and we become the very people that God has created us to be. And when we choose to turn our backs and we go, thanks God, but no thanks, I'm going here. Thanks God, but I'm going to choose this one. And sometimes God does give us choices, doesn't he? He does. But sometimes when there's a leading and we choose to do our own thing, we choose to start going our own way. But redemption and restoration is always his heart. It's always there. He's the God of the second chance and the third and the fourth chance. And he's wooing. He's always wooing us back to be with him. Why? Because it's his presence that we're drawn to. It's his presence. It's his presence. The Philistines have their fill and they no longer want the ark. So, 1 Samuel 7, so the men of Kiriath-Jerim 
came and took up the ark of the Lord. They brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. The ark remained there a long time, 20 years in all. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. That's significant. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their bales and those things and served the Lord only. Three things are happening here briefly. Then another passage, and then we'll do communion. The ark returns. The presence of God returns to the people of God and rests in Abinadab's house for 20 years. And later we read the story when David comes and he has a first ditch attempt at getting the ark, but kind of gets the transportation device wrong. And then comes the second time and gets the ark and brings the ark to Jerusalem to be with him, to be in the holy city. Why? Because it's his presence. David was a worshiper. He loved the presence of God. That's a whole number of sermon or three. Second thing that's important is the people of Israel turn back to the Lord. They turn back to him. That's called repentance. Repentance isn't just about saying sorry. It's about a turning back to the Lord. It's a, it's, a, it's a posture of the heart. It's about laying down our false idols that we've created in our lives and saying, I am choosing to lay those things down for the sake of relationship with you. And then thirdly, leadership changes. Eli has passed away. That's another story. You can read it there too. And his sons have passed away. And the mantle of spiritual leadership passes to Samuel, who leads in a very different way and leads the people towards serving God. God's heart, the heart of the Father, is that we, he would present and be present amongst us, his people. It's his presence that we're after. Lastly, David, uh, later we read, um, has an extremely inappropriate relationship with someone that's not his own. And um, he's caught out. And uh, he writes this incredible psalm, which is one of the, the most brilliant pieces of scripture most honest account of repentance and I'm going to read it and I'd like you to again I'm going to invite you to close your eyes as I read it but you don't have to but as I read it let's make it a prayer as we prepare ourselves for taking you know the bread and the wine as we enter in we want to wholeheartedly give of ourselves it's, it's all we can give him it's all he wants from us, but it's actually all that we can give him. We can't give him anything physical that he hasn't already given to us. 
just wants us. We're in Psalm 51, 11 verses. Let's make it a prayer. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my inequity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness. Even in the womb you taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my inequity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me.